Hello and welcome to I Don't Know The Podcast, episode 47, Are Vampires Real? You may remember, way back in episode 9, we looked at the Highgate Vampire, which turned out to be less about a vampire and more about a pissing match between two delusional idiots. So this week, we really look at vampires. Vampires are the mythical, immortal beings who survive by sucking the blood of living creatures. The vampire legend goes back to ancient times and can be found in some form of almost every culture. The vampire can also be found in modern culture, from Bram Stoker's Dracula to Sesame Street's The Count. And people can't get enough of these nocturnal neck lovers. Well, mostly 15-year-old girls. But are these legends real? Are there still vampires shunning the sunlight and avoiding French restaurants? I don't know. So listen this week to find out what else I don't know about vampires. Vampires. These undead creatures of the night are said to feast on blood, turn into a bat, and they never age. But there are some drawbacks to being a vampire. You can't enter a premises without being invited. They can be killed by sunlight, garlic, crucifixes, and wooden stakes. They have no reflection in the mirror, which might explain their weird goth appearance. I think my wife might be a vampire. She stays out all night, men are always inviting her inside, and she becomes genuinely distressed when I try and stab her with a wooden stake. But anyway, vampires of various types can be found in folklore all over the world. As well as the Eastern European legends, there is the Iron Teeth You people of Africa, which take the form of a firefly and hunt children. In Asian culture, there's the Nukibuki, whose head and neck can detach from its body to fly around seeking its prey at night. I could go on, but there are so many that I won't, because absolutely no one wants a two-hour episode of this show. But we will look at a few. A search for the truth behind the legend. He was said to be seven feet tall, of blood-red eyes and sharpened metal teeth. If you're a real vampire, why are you wearing fake contacts? They call me the Count because I love to count things. There's so much vampire stuff out there, it's difficult to know where to start. So let's look at the biggest, the most famous, the one that started it all. Well, not really. Count Dracula. Luckily, I remembered a documentary series from my youth 
The year was 1976, and while everyone else was disco dancing and rioting at the Notting Hill Carnival, a young K-Mill was watching In Search Of. And one of the best things about the TV show was that it was presented by that guy who played John Walking Fox in Gunsmoke, Leonard Nimoy. Each week, Leonard would go in search of things like Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monsters and Killer Bees. But the one that interests us now is episode 16, In Search of Dracula. And it starts with some music that seems a bit too jaunty for the subject matter, if you ask me. Fiction or reality? A search for the truth behind the legend. Straight in with the big questions, but first, a disclaimer. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. Hmm, sounds like a cop-out to me. Horror has a special fascination for many, and filmmakers have done their best to exploit that fascination. Audiences have come to know Dracula well. They've seen him portrayed on the screen for more than 50 years. There's the black cape, the jutting canine teeth, the demonic eyes and nocturnal lust for blood. So many movies with great actors like Bela Lugosi, Christopher Lee, and George Hamilton? But where do these Draculas come from? Romania is a land rich in romantic folklore and legends. And a lot of stray dogs. I know, I've been there. The rugged mountains and hidden valleys breed their own mythology. Called Romania's Olympus, Mount Ceflau rises nearly 6,000 feet in the Carpathian Mountains. That's where I went. I went skiing in the Carpathian Mountains back in the 90s and my fluid traversing of the piste was constantly interrupted by mangy dogs running out in front of me. Which is probably why a Romanian has never won an Olympic skiing event. At least I don't think one has. I haven't really done the research. Each year, even now, on the first Sunday of August, a pagan ritual is reenacted. Thousands gather by torchlight on Cheflau's shadowy summit to celebrate friendship and love and the renewal of life. During the rest of the year, Cheflau yields its mysteries to few men. I wish you'd say what the pagan ritual is. It could be a sacrifice, or dancing around in the bare scuddies, or both. Dr. George Yakumi is a surgeon who climbs mainly for adventure. The other, a shepherd, who has spent a lifetime in these alpine meadows. Though one is a simple peasant, the other a man of science. The mountain has given them a strong bond of friendship. I'm not sure the shepherd will like being called a simple peasant. There's probably a lot more to shepherding than meets the eye. They exchange stories of ancient superstitions of dark, frightening corners where no one has yet ventured. See? 
Being a shepherd is dangerous. The music seems to recall a distant time in these mountains when ghosts inhabited Cheflau. It does seem, though, that music should be left to qualified musicians. I think one of his sheep could get a better sound out of that recorder. Legends tell of a 15th century nobleman named Boudou who loved the king's daughter, Anna. When he was killed in battle, the grief-stricken Anna asked the powerful witch to bring her lover back from the dead. The witch raised Boudou from his grave, but as a ghost. While passing over Cheflau, Boudou's ghost was struck by the rising sun, turning him into rock. Till this day, on Cheflau's brooding summit, there is a stone megalith known as Boudou's Tower. And that's the reason we had to listen to a doctor and a shepherd getting drunk while pretending they could play a recorder? In the nightmare world of superstition and fear, it often becomes difficult to separate fact from fiction. The familiar story of Dracula is a case in point. Since its publication in 1897, Bram Stoker's classic novel of gothic horror has been read or performed almost continuously. Yet few are aware that the character was based on a real prince of darkness, whose deeds are perhaps more shocking and more terrifying than those of the fictional vampire. That's right, Bram Stoker's Dracula is constantly being made into TV and movies. One reason could be that the book is now in the public domain, so there's no royalties to pay. And of course, we know Dracula is fictional. But Vlad? Transylvania, stronghold of legend. A place dimly recalled from horror movies as a dark, forbidding region cloaked in superstition and terror. I remember Transylvania as being really, really cheap. It was pennies for a beer or wine. But then, I was there just a little bit after they'd hanged communist dictator Nikolai Ceausescu. Along Transylvania's southern perimeter stands Castle Braun. In appearance, it corresponds to the castle described in the novel as the home of the bloodthirsty Count. I really wanted to go there, but access was blocked by heavy snow during my time in the Carpathians. The German film classic Nosferatu comes closer to capturing the mood of the original novel than the later interpretation of Bela Lugosi. Oh, maybe there's some beef between Nimoy and Lugosi. In the book, the hero Jonathan Harker describes his first encounter with Dracula. Holding out his hand, he grasped mine with a strength which made me wince, an effect which was not lessened by the fact that it seemed as cold as ice. Yet another reason my wife could be a Dracula. Leonard then goes on to practically read a whole chapter of the book, which we know is fiction, but then we get back to Transylvania. Like an image from an old fairy tale, the town of Sigishora slumbers peacefully along the gentle slopes of the Transylvanian highlands. Unchanged since the Middle Ages... I would hope that it has changed a bit since the Middle Ages. I'm sure they have some indoor plumbing and at least some electricity now. 
A coin bearing the family emblem is one of the few remaining artifacts from Dracula's reign. The symbol of the dragon reinforced Vlad's image as a fearless Christian crusader. As his notoriety grew, the name Dracula took on new meaning. Dragon would be increasingly interpreted as devil. That's a bit harsh on dragons. I know Game of Thrones is still 800 years off, but surely not all dragons are bad. Vlad belonged to an age of brutality. The Renaissance, which saw the rebirth of art and learning, also bred new tyrannies, unspeakable torture and oppression. But it did create many cool tourist attractions. To understand Vlad's cruelty, we must also understand his world. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people have rough or violent childhoods, but they don't go out and impale thousands of people. But it seems that, like for many kids, they have a problem with priests. For the monasteries of Romania were more than strongholds of the Christian faith. They were part of a formidable defense perimeter to ward off invaders. It's likely that the young Dracula looked out from the battlements of such a monastery watching men die in the brutal spectacle of war. Well, it could have been worse. Steeped in the teachings of the Eastern Orthodox Church, Vlad Dracula surely must have developed strong, simple notions of good and evil, of reward and retribution. Hmm. I wonder which side he chose. Until the 16th century, Suceva was the capital of the province of Moldavia. Here, Vlad Dracula fled, deposed after briefly assuming the throne of Wallachia at the age of 17. This was the beginning of his second exile. Wow, two exiles before he's even old enough to drink. The greatest threat to his power centered in the German towns of southern Transylvania. Of these, Brasov was the largest. Convinced that her powerful merchants were conspiring with his enemies, Furious at the defiance of his trade restrictions, Vlad launched a series of punitive raids against Brasov and neighboring towns, taking a terrible toll of their citizens. You'd think people would know better than to piss off someone whose last name is the Impaler. Leonard gives us a bit of a history lesson here. How many perished by his command, no one can say. That slow, torturous death by impalement was excessively barbaric, no one can deny. Yet since the only written accounts from that time come from Germany, it's conceivable the atrocity reports were exaggerated. That may be so, but even one impalement isn't good. Not so the massacre at Tirgovisti, Vlad's capital. During his successful campaign against the Turks, he impaled thousands of enemy soldiers outside the city gates to frighten the invaders. He would be known now for all time as Vlad the Impaler. Or Vlad the Fahler, as they say in Germany. Viewed through the filter of time, another side to Vlad's character emerges. His bold strategies won the admiration of his Turkish opponents, who also regarded him as just and honest. On the threshold of victory, he was betrayed by his younger brother Radu, and forced into political captivity in Hungary. Fucking Radu. A few among the million and a half who live in Bucharest 
Romania's bustling capital. In their city, Vlad the Impaler made his last stand. Not far from the center of Bucharest, with its huge outdoor markets, are archaeological remnants of its past. And more stray dogs. Layers of history, stripped away, reveal fortifications dating back to the 13th century. That's nothing. We've got the Tower of London. That was built in 1066. Below ground level, there has been unearthed a portion of the original castle built by Vlad Dracula. It was in these haunted surroundings that Dracula planned his last campaign against the Turks. His third and final reign would last only two months. On December 14, 1476, he was killed in battle near Bucharest. And according to eyewitnesses, beheaded, perhaps mistakenly, by one of his own troops. Vlad's remains were secretly buried at Snagov. In death's darkness, the prince may finally have found peace. But his last conscious moments don't sound very peaceful. Legends die slowly. The myth of the human being who takes the form of a bat and drinks blood will survive because people choose to believe. Wait a second. He didn't mention Vlad doing any of those things. Vampires, like werewolves and monsters, serve a purpose. They are representations of our hidden fears. By conquering these nightmare creatures, we purge ourselves of our darkest thoughts, and in so doing, reclaim the human spirit. That's all well and good, Leonard Nimoy, but that show wasn't about Draculas at all. It, should, it shouldn't have been called In Search of Dracula. It should have been called In Search of Some Guy That Stabbed a Whole Bunch of People But Isn't a Vampire. In fact, I can't even see how Dracula came out of that story. He didn't turn into a bat, he wasn't a snappy dresser, he just lived in the same place. But let's look at a real vampire that definitely did happen. The Gorbals is a squalid slum in the city of Glasgow, built on the site of a former leper colony. Its buildings were stained black with soot from the nearby factories. The overcrowding was so bad that at one time, 40 people would have to share a single water tap. But the appalling conditions and poverty would make the perfect conditions for a blood-sucking creature. This was a vampire of the worst kind, a Scottish one. And I must warn you, this next segment contains some very graphic Scottish accents. In 1954, strange and horrifying tales began to circulate the playgrounds of Glasgow. I didn't know was what they called a vampire. Um, we were told, or we picked up in school, it was something called the man with the iron teeth. That's what they called him, the man with the iron teeth. So this started, and then it started describing who's this man with the iron teeth, and he apparently had big fangs and, you know, come down like a walrus or something like this, and... Uh, what does that tell us about the state of Scottish dentistry, that a man with walrus-like teeth can wander around Glasgow without anyone noticing? He's taken, he's kidnapped two boys and what would happen, and we're all trying to figure out, well, who's the two boys? It's almost like somebody from another street or something they've got. And then it snowballed from there, and he said, and this guy's living up in the gravy. I understood most of that, but I might need a recap. 
a hideous and ghoulish creature had kidnapped and murdered two local children. The creature was known as the Gorbel's Vampire, or the Man with the Iron Teeth. He was said to be seven foot tall, of blood-red eyes and sharpened metal teeth. He sounds terrifying. The stories going around school had it that the vampire would drink the blood and eat the bodies of his victims. It wasn't long before every child in the area had their own tale of the vampire. Some saw him at night, prowling in the darkness. Others saw him hiding in the shadows. But they all knew that the beast rested within the southern necropolis, the city of the dead. When he says the city of the dead, he doesn't mean Edinburgh. He's talking about a graveyard. Glasgow's southern necropolis was built in 1840. It is the second largest cemetery to be established within the city. It was created to provide a far more extensive burial area and was a direct response to the crowded state of the old Gorbals burial ground. People were dying to get in there. Back in those days, there was no such thing as a children's play park and due to how crowded the streets were, the local children would play in the necropolis. It's true. And during my extensive research on this subject, I found photos of kids running around the graveyard and even playing leapfrog with the headstones. The school teachers and many of the children's parents wouldn't believe these fantastical stories of iron teeth and vampiric ghouls. But someone would have to put a stop to this creature. And if none of the adults would help, there was one last resort. The children would take it upon themselves, and in true Glaswegian style, before they left on the vampire hunt, they armed themselves. It's amazing. The grown-ups didn't believe the kids, so the kids grabbed whatever they could find to make a weapon and went out to beat the shit out of the vampire. They were really scared because you didn't know what was going to go on. I think we get we were more frightened by the time we got there and thought, this could be real. <laughs> Especially when we saw the older ones with weapons and stuff like that. You went, what's going on here? You know, this, this could be serious. Wow, kids in the 50s got things done. If you told kids today there was a vampire outside, they wouldn't even look up from their tablets. But anyway, we were in and I wanted a place. We only got the tree. Because the older boys were up short trees and they're looking. You'd be seen over there and they're looking. And I kept seeing shadows. But it was reflections. People up trees and things. And I thought, I think that's him down there. <laughs> and they're all running with sticks. They were literally chasing anything that moved. On the 23rd of September, 1954, police constable Alex Deeprose was called to a disturbance at the southern necropolis in the Gorbals. When the constable arrived, he could barely believe his eyes. Swarming the cemetery were more than 200 children. Some carried crosses and crucifixes. Others had knives, axes, hammers, sharpened sticks, anything they could lay their hands on. Many even constructed their own weapons. To be honest, I don't think Glasgow has changed much since then. The children were scouring the necropolis, looking behind every gravestone, inspecting every shadow cast by the fires of the steelworks. Some even dared to venture within the grand and elaborate Victorian tombs. Now and then a voice would call out, there he is, and the mass of children would run to the site to confront another shadow in the darkness. Eventually, returning from his shock at the curious bedlam before him, the constable asked some of the children what was going on, 
they were quick to tell him of the creature and ask the policemen to aid in their search. Yeah, good luck getting the cops to do anything. Sure, they're right on you if you completely and accidentally forget to wear clothing at a McDonald's drive-thru. But if you want them to hunt vampires, forget about it. Try as he could, Constable Deep Rose could not get the children to disperse. More officers then arrived at the outlandish scene and tried to persuade the children to give up on their hunt and go home. The officers were mostly ignored and they were far outnumbered. It was only when a local headmaster was called for that the children began to leave. Uh Uh-oh, now they're in trouble. It was said that the following day in school, there was a lengthy lecture on the folly of vampire hunting. The headmaster decried the children's belief in such a ridiculous tale. But for the next few nights, children still appeared at the southern necropolis, looking for the man with the iron teeth. Hmm, maybe the headmaster is the man with the iron teeth. So what was the truth behind this strange occurrence in Glasgow? Was there a real vampire or man with iron teeth? Definitely yes. A police investigation stated that there were no reports of any missing children in the area at that time. They probably said that to avoid the paperwork. And there were never any names brought forward in relation to the alleged victims of the vampire. A large number of people put the Gorbals vampire down to a kind of mass hysteria brought on by media, specifically American horror comic books. Or maybe it was out of boredom. One comic in particular was pointed to, issue 15 of Dark Mysteries, released in December 1953. In this comic, there was a story titled The Vampire with the Iron Teeth. This tale is commonly credited with being the source of the Gorbals vampire. Hmm, there could be a connection there. The idea of American horror media corrupting the young children of Scotland was so pervasive at the time that an alliance of parents, teachers, politicians and religious leaders were proposing legislation to ban the sale of these American comics. Every generation seems to get this. It's just the type of media that changes. This campaign even reached Parliament and was pushed by then Labour MP for the Gorbals, Alice Cullen. All of the media attention and the efforts of the campaigners resulted in the 1955 Children and Young Persons Harmful Publications Act being passed. This act restricted the print, publication, sale or hire of any comics which featured crime, violence, cruelty and incidents of repulsive behaviour. So basically banning anything worth reading. And that law still stands today, although no one has ever been prosecuted under it. And the theory that American comics influence this mass hysteria doesn't hold up as strongly as first thought, especially when the kids claim to have never seen the comics and not even know what a vampire was. When they said to you about a vampire, what did you picture in your head? It was like a monster, but I couldn't picture or imagine it. But I knew it would be frightened. Did MD did like have a description? Did MD say, say about a description or anything? No, no when we were into the, the graveyard, people were saying it's green and different things. You know, you try to picture this in your head. And I'm thinking, 
how far are we away for the game? <laughs> no, seriously, because the comes will make a run. See, he had no idea what it was going to look like. Some have credited the idea of the man with the iron teeth to a passage in the Bible. In Daniel 7-7, it states, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Yeah, that book has a lot to answer for. It is possible that some children read this, or heard it in church or from parents, and their imagination made this iron-toothed beast come to life somewhere within the southern necropolis. Maybe it should be banned under that new law. There are also many connections to Scottish folklore which shouldn't be overlooked. In one tale from Glasgow, children were warned that if they were badly behaved, a monster known as the Iron Man would come and take them away. Take them away to where? I mean, anywhere's got to be better than the Gorbals, right? Another older tale was that of Jenny with iron teeth, an evil witch who was said to roam the Glasgow Green in the early 1800s. Jenny would take children who refused to go to sleep and devour them with her large, sharp iron teeth. There's a well-known poem about Jenny with iron teeth that was told to children who would not go to bed at an appropriate hour. And you think that kid will be sleeping after being told they'll be eaten by a metal-mouthed old hag? So maybe the Gorbals vampire is the result of folklore, media, and overactive imaginations fueled by boredom and squalid living conditions. I guess, if we're going to find out if vampires are real, then we have to ask a vampire. A quick search on YouTube came up with a guy who claims to be a vampire. He's an American called Logan South. Not only does he claim to be a vampire, he also claims to be an actor, which I also find dubious. And pretty quickly, I wish I'd done a bit more research and not just picked the first video I came across, because he spends the first 30 seconds combing his hair. Hi everyone, my name's Logan South, and I, I'm a vampire. He's in a drab bedroom lit by a red bulb. He has coloured contact lenses and fake teeth. In this video, he answers questions that most people ask vampires. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, I was on uh, an episode of MTV's True Life along with my girlfriend Daly, Miss Daly Catherine, uh, and we had a fantastic experience. Unlike the people that watched it, I'm guessing. Um, the people were fantastic. Uh, they worked with us very well, and uh, you know, let's be honest, uh, a lot of why it was fantastic was because I, I uh, made sure that the contract was good and read over it like a smart push person should, and and uh, you know, didn't get fucked. So there's that. So there's that. Is reading contracts real good a vampire thing? Question number 10. Are you immortal? God, I hope not. No. Are you? No, I'm not. But I'm not the one claiming to be a vampire. No, I'm not immortal. I've never been immortal, nor have I ever claimed to be immortal. I think it'd be fun. Don't get me wrong. I, I think I'd have a lot of fun being immortal. I think it would be awful. Especially if this guy's around the whole time. Um, imagine the, the things that you could see and do if you were immortal. Imagine the ways that you could fuck with your friends, you know? 
Uh, hell, honestly, if I was immortal, all I would do is just rub it in my friend's face once they turned 80. I'd be standing over their bedside and going, yeah, well, look at me with the young face and you with the old face. And uh, you remember that time that you, you know, whatever. Well, that's what he'd do if he actually had friends to fuck with. Question number nine. Can you turn me into a vampire? Would I, would I want to? No, no, the, the answer is no. No, I cannot turn you into a vampire. But uh, even if I could, I probably wouldn't, because most people are dicks. So, there's that. So, another vampire power that this so-called vampire doesn't have. And maybe people are just dicks to him. Question number eight. Do you burst into flames in the sunlight? Please say yes. Please say yes. Uh, no. No, I do not. Damn it. I do not burst into flames uh, in the sunlight. Uh, do I like sunlight? No, I don't like sunlight. Sunlight and me, are, we don't vibe. Um, as a vampire, it makes me ill. It makes me uh, feel unpleasant. Uh, I do not enjoy it. I get about five minutes to a migraine, about 15 minutes to crippling stomach pain, about 20 minutes to crippling body pain. Again, sunlight is supposed to kill vampires, not upset their stomachs and give them gas. He talks at length about various discomforts he suffers in the sunlight, like a hypochondriac scrolling through WebND. Then... Question number seven. Are you evil? No, no, I'm not evil. I'm not evil. Um, no, he's not evil. Just incredibly annoying. Question number six. Does garlic hurt you? Um, no. Uh, matter of fact, it does quite the opposite. I love garlic. No garlic doesn't hurt me. That sounds like something someone who gets hurt by garlic would say. Number five, do you drink blood? Um, yeah, sometimes, occasionally. Um, really, occasionally. There are actually a few different ways of feeding. Uh, I do have a donor, and uh, she's very pretty, and I like her a lot. She's that other girlfriend I mentioned. and uh, You wouldn't know her. She lives in Canada. Number four, do you have superpowers? My secret's out. Absolutely, I have superpowers. Really? No, I don't have superpowers. Um, I'd like superpowers. Uh, you know, people ask this because, uh, you know, they see all this in, uh, in the movies. They don't ask it because they've seen it in the movies. They ask it because vampires are supposed to have superpowers. By and large, no. Uh, as a vampire, I have certain heightened uh, human traits... Uh, heightened senses are, are a thing for me. I can't say that they're a thing for everybody, uh, but they are a thing for me. A uh, heightened sense of smell, heightened sense of taste, heightened sense of hearing. A heightened sense of his own importance. Uh, imagine that <clears throat> you're in a group of friends and uh, one of them lets out a small fart. And I don't have to imagine it. That's every day in my house. They think they're going to get away with it because it was just small enough and just far away from enough uh, from everybody f for it to kind of pass without anybody catching wind <laughs> of it. But me, I would I would instantly grab that uh, because uh, that's uh, how heightened my senses are. We've done seven out of ten questions so far, and the only power he has is being a small fart detector. And I don't even remember reading about that in any of the Anne Rice books. Number three, if you're a real vampire, why are you wearing fake contacts and fangs? 
That's what I wanted to ask. Um, I don't know. Why are you wearing uh, jewelry? Why are Why are you wearing a uh, a bracelet or a, or a, or a, a t shirt? Why are you wearing clothes? Because society McDonald's drive through policy mandates that I do so. Believe me, I'm way more comfortable without these cumbersome garments. I, I don't know because it's uh, it's a it's something that allows me to represent who I am externally. It allows me to represent my internal externally. I can see that. It projects his inner douchebag. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I am a fangsmith. I make these. I make fangs for a living. And I get paid for it. Jesus, people will buy anything. Question number two. Do you hate werewolves? Uh, no. Uh, I... No, I don't. I, I'm, I'm not a dick. Opinion might be divided on that matter. Sorry, no, I, I, I hate to burst that underworld bubble, but no, I've, uh, I've never had a problem with a, uh, a werewolf. Has he even met a werewolf? No, the, the wolves that I know, they are uh, ordinary folks just like you and me. I have a feeling they are not just like me. And they have a primal animal understanding and uh they embody that at all times not just when there's a full moon or or whatever then they're not fucking werewolves jesus question number one finally uh the one question that i get asked the absolute most uh especially after all of these others is um, okay, so, like, uh, what is a vampire, then? Allow me, if I may, to do a little edumacation. God, I fucking hate this guy. A vampire, simply put, is a human being that requires an alternative source of human energy. No, it isn't. This is, thankfully, the last question, but he takes over ten minutes to answer it. And it's all self-indulgent bullshit, and gives us more reasons to think that he isn't a vampire and actually is a sad delusional fantasist playing dress-up to cover up for his insecurities and abomination of a personality. But who am I to judge? Episode 47 Are Vampires Real? The Epilogue So, what have we learnt this week? We learnt that there's a reason Romanian music doesn't feature heavily in the Grammy nominations. We learnt that not even vampires should fuck with Glaswegians. Especially when we saw the older ones with weapons and stuff like that, you go, what's going on here? You know, this, this could be serious. And we learnt that Logan South's one and only power is being able to sniff out farts. You're in a group of friends, and uh, one of them lets out a small fart. Of course, we already knew Dracula wasn't real. But Bram Stoker did take away a lot from Romanian folklore. And, as mentioned earlier, just about every culture has some form of vampire legend. Some of this comes from vampires being associated with clusters of deaths that could be attributed to a contagious but unknown illness present in small communities. Some dead people were believed to be vampires because their bodies hadn't decomposed as some might expect, but different conditions can lead to that. 
Even rabies has been linked to the vampire legend. The Gorbals vampire was probably just a playground rumour that spread around. At the time, there were no records of two missing boys, and nobody actually had any evidence of seeing the man with the iron teeth. As for Logan South, despite his insistence that he's a vampire, he obviously isn't. For me, he's the Grand Canyon of giant dickholes. He eats garlic, smells farts, and feels queasy when he's out in the sun. Really? Nosferatu would be spinning in his coffin if he ever saw that massive bell end. There is one solid reason why vampires cannot exist. Some guy whose name I can't even begin to pronounce made a study of movie fiction versus physics reality and it states that if vampires fed at anywhere near the rate they do in films the human race would be wiped out pretty soon after the first vampire appeared. So, are vampires real? I'd say no. If you enjoy this podcast, then share it with your friends and let me know. Join the Facebook group and the Instagram, and you can email me at idontknowpod at outlook.com. Special thanks to our logo creator, Raymond Roel of Project Raven Creative. See all his links in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and come back next week to find out what I don't know. Designed to do Three.